0: Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E.com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Welcome to Money for the Rest of Us, a personal finance show on money, how it works, how to invest it, and how to live without worrying about it. I'm your host, David Stein, and today is episode 86, and it's titled, Don't Be a Commodity. A few days ago, I returned a rental car at the Salt Lake City Airport. LaPrile and I were flying down or driving down to Salt Lake City to fly out to Phoenix, where I've been attending a conference on indexing, on exchange-traded funds, and on smart beta. Pretty fascinating conference. And I'm recording in our Airbnb casita that we've rented here in Phoenix. And... It's, it's worked out really well, except it's a little echoey. So I've tried to reduce the echo as much as possible on this particular episode. And that's what you hear. I'm just not recording in a plush hotel room. I'm in sort of an echoey casita, which a which, little bit more about what we're renting in a few minutes. So we stopped at a nearby gas station to refuel the car before returning it. The station was mobbed. It was one of the most crowded gas stations I've seen in years. And when I took my turn to pump gas, I saw why. The price of regular gasoline was only $1.87 a gallon. I later checked, and it turns out that station has the lowest gasoline prices in Salt Lake City. The price was 50% lower than what I paid for gas just 18 months ago. And on an inflation-adjusted basis, it is the cheapest gasoline has been in the U.S. since 1998, which in turn was the lowest inflation-adjusted gasoline prices ever. The price I paid a few days ago is about 20 cents per gallon what I pay in my hometown in Idaho. Now, I had to look that up because, to be honest, I never pay any attention to what I pay for gas in Idaho. And because I don't, I don't make the decision to where I buy gas on price, unlike probably most of those that were lining up to buy gas at this particular station. Gasoline is a commodity, and often when businesses are selling a commodity, they compete on price. If that Salt Lake City gas station raises their price a nickel a gallon, the amount of customers lining up to buy gas would plummet. Now, why don't I pay attention to what I pay for gas in my town? Because I'm not buying a commodity. I buy Steve's gas. Who is Steve? Steve owns the gas station where I buy gasoline. That's also where I get my car oil changed. And I get my vehicles washed and detailed. I buy from Steve because his employees are considerate. They offer to wash the windows on my car. They pump LaPrille's gas, and they'll check her oil in the car. Even Steve has bounded out of the station a few times to put gas in LaPrille's car. One time, I went through the automated car wash at this gas station, and I, my car was really, really dirty. it would probably been out driving in the woods, so there was a lot of, of bugs on the bumper, and they didn't all come out. Well, one of Steve's employees had me come around to the detailing station, put on some some type of special soap, and scrubbed off those bugs for free. I buy Steve's gas because I don't have to pay 25 cents to get put air on my tire like a number of the other gas stations around where I live. And I don't have to remind them to to turn on the air compressor in the morning so I can actually get air. I buy Steve's gas because I appreciate Steve's sense of design, his business acumen and his sense of community. Steve will write editorials in the local paper. I write a weekly column there. He writes an occasional editorial. I often don't agree with with his views, but I appreciate the fact that he's sharing them with the community. I finally I buy Steve's gas because I appreciate his and his employees' willingness to make fun of themselves as they dance to that disco song car wash in the annual 4th of July parade in my town. If you're a member of my Insider's Guide, I send you a link to the video. I sent you a link in this week's email. If you're not a member, go to moneyfortherestofus.net and you can get a link to that video as I'll send it in next week's guide also. And you can see this hilarious dance completely orchestrated, choreographed as they dance down the street. They're willing to make fun of themselves. So it's a commodity that they're selling, but they don't deliver it in a commodity-like fashion. I buy gas from Steve because I know Steve and I know his personality. Most products and services have a commodity-like element to them. Even in my own profession, there are firms that are essentially competing on price because if all you have is a commodity, that's how you differentiate yourself. And it took me a while to realize people hired me as an institutional investment advisor because of me, not because of my firm. I remember in the first few years at at my firm, I mentioned a few episodes ago, Fred, our founder, when we would get a new opportunity, the way it works in the institutional space is you if there's an endowment, a foundation, typically you would go to what's known as a finals presentation. So you would meet with the investment committee or the board. You'd give a 30-minute presentation and talk about your firm, the investment process, et cetera. And then the investment committee would, would choose perhaps of the three or four firms. They would choose one that that they wanted. And so when we would have one of these opportunities, Fred would ask around the office, does anyone know a board member on this particular prospect? And, and if so, to give them a call and sort of to, to make the introduction or, or to, to try to get some type of edge or a relationship, to build the relationship. And, and I always felt uncomfortable with that. It felt like meddling with the process, that there was some, it was somewhat unfair and, and that, that attitude of mine was wrong. And I realized this several years later when it became, I had an opportunity to go and present to a foundation down in San Antonio, Texas. And a couple of weeks before, I, I took a special trip down to Texas to meet and have lunch with the chair of the investment committee. Now, this was new ground for me. I, I typically would, would go in cold, but I thought, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try it. I'm going to go meet with as many people as I can, well, in this case, just the, the committee chair, had a great lunch, very much was able to just, just was, it was a good experience. And I, got, and I got hired. I did the finals presentation, and, and I won. Later, when I talked to the executive director, he said what had happened is after that lunch, this committee chair called up the executive director and said, we found our guy. This is the guy we need to hire. Notice he didn't say the firm. He said, this is the investment advisor, the person, me, that we needed to hire. I was not a firm. I was, I was an individual, and that is what differentiated me. Now, the executive director said, we still have to go through the process, but that's why I won. We won. It was because I was not a commodity. About eight years later, I had, I had I worked with this client for four or five years, and I turned them over to some other associates. and And they, and this client was doing another investment advisor search, and my associates or one of my partners went down for the presentation. and And as they went into the presentation, the former, the other advisor that was presenting, one of the other competitors was was giving the executive director of the foundation a big hug. That, that, that competitor, they, they knew that committee and that client even more than, than we did, who was the existing client, and we lost the business. So the relationship mattered, not being a commodity mattered a lot. Now, there is a type of investment advisor out there now called robo-advisors, and they invest via algorithms. It's c- completely online, and you examples include Betterment, Wealthfront, Future Advisor. There's aspects to the Vanguard. Schwab, have an, they have a robo-advisor division. And what's interesting about this is they, they invest the money. It's automated. It's via ETFs but there's not a person. And so the question is, how are they differentiated? Or are they competing on price? And in a few weeks, one of the sessions I attended at this conference was on robo-advisors, and and it's a really, really interesting business. I get asked about it a lot, and I think it's something that we're at least going to spend an episode focusing on it. Now, my current business is, as a podcaster... Uh, running the hub and education site. Sometimes I need design help for logo or graphic. And in today's connected world, I can get this work done for $5 on a website such as Fiverr. That's a F-I-E-R-R. But I haven't ever done that. Instead, I use Reese. And Reese is a designer that that one of my, my friends recommended to me. And why do I use Reese? I've used her for a number of projects now. Because her designs are remarkable, and she understands branding, and she's willing to tell me when my idea is stupid, or, or she won't speak that quite that blunt, but she will share her opinion, respect mine, but definitely is, not, is willing to, to take a stand and to share her thoughts, to be an individual, not to be a commodity. She doesn't run her business like a commodity. She is selling herself. Another client I had down in well, I won't I won't give the state. When I gave the presentation, one of their questions was, "How do you react when your client doesn't take your advice?" And now that was an interesting question, and 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 I answered it and said, "That's fine. I don't I don't expect." clients to take all my advice. I'm not going to get mad. And, and that question actually is what led me to win the business because their former advisor would get mad when somebody didn't take their advice. Now, Reese doesn't get mad if I don't take her advice. It's a collaborative type relationship. This foundation who hired me because they wouldn't take my advice or I, I wouldn't get mad if they didn't take the advice, had an investment, a hedge fund manager named Bill Ackman. Bill Ackman runs the hedge fund Pershing Square. And this foundation invested in Bill Ackman's former firm hedge fund called Gotham Partners, which closed. In the early, about 2000, 1999, 2000, 2001 period, I would go every year and I would meet with Bill Ackman and his partner, David Berkowitz and and learn about how they were running this hedge fund and it was fascinating because but David was was much more laid back but Bill was was a you could see then he was a very very not a he he was just very very focused and and very very intense and I remember them talking about some of their investments one of them is Kinder Morgan an MLP, a Master Limited Partnership, which I've talked about on, on this particular show. And Master Limited Partnerships have had a really, really challenging year, which I'll talk about in a few mi- minutes. But Bill Ackman was one of the first investors in MLPs because this was in the early days of Master Limited Partnerships. This particular fund closed because a couple things. They had a number of illiquid investments. They, they owned giftcertificates.com. They owned a series of golf courses that they were trying to roll up. So they were fairly liquid. But one of the things Bill Ackman was learning how to do or was starting to do was what, what has come to be known as public shorting. You short a stock in hopes it will go down, but do it in a very public fashion to, to to point out the company's flaws and why you think the company stock should fall, and this is very very controversial. They started doing with a, with Farmers Mac, then then they he started doing with MBIA, and this made my c- client really really uncomfortable. This going out and combating against a company in, in anticipation. Well, there, there's an article that I'll link to. In the show notes, if the Insider's Guide members would have already got that, it's called "Siege of er- Bill Ackman's Siege of Herbal Life. And it's by Roger Parlow. And it's talking about Ackman's ongoing, continuing battle with Herbal Life, which is a multi-level marketing company that sells nutrition products. They, they sell beauty products. And the quote from Parlow is... Drawing upon bottomless resources and boundless self-confidence, Ackman has committed himself to destroying the company, company in this case being Herbalife. This made my, my client really uncomfortable, and so they terminated the relationship with Gotham Partners, as did a number of other clients. And as a result, the fund became, it became very, very challenging because so many investors pulled out and yet, a lot of the investments were illiquid, and it took four or five years for this fund to to wind down. At the same time, David Berkowitz and Ackman split up, but then Ackman started his new fund, Pershing Square. In two thousand four, it has achieved annualized rates of return, an annualized rate of return of twenty one percent, according to this article in Fortune magazine. Let me pause here to share some words from this week's sponsors. And right now, get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com slash David. That's M-O-N-A-R-C-H dot slash David for your extended 30-day free trial. We have a brand new sponsor to our show. It's Yahoo Finance. Yahoo's been around for decades. My first email outside of work was a Yahoo email address. comprehensive financial news and analysis. You need to check out Yahoo Finance, particularly if you haven't been there in a while. Check it out at yahoofinance.com. That's yahoofinance.com. Bill Ackman is not a commodity. Now, I don't necessarily agree on how he goes about investing, but that this is not, he is not a faceless fund. He is the face of his fund, of his investment style. It is a very, very unique style. And, but he's going up against another firm that is not a commodity, Herbalife. And I only thought of this because this casita where we're staying, the woman that owns the house and in this pool house where we're staying, has worked for and been an independent distributor of Herbalife for 32 years. She's in the president's, I'm trying to think. Here's a, let me look at her card. On the desk here, where I'm. She is on the chief executive president's team member. She has sold through her line a, a lot, millions and millions of dollars of Herbalife products. Been doing it since the mid 80s. And I asked her about Bill Ackman, whether, whether it's having an impact on our business. And because here's this hedge fund trying to destroy her her company, and her livelihood. And she says, I mean, yes and no. In the U.S., people uh, have, have heard of it, and they question it, but most of her business is overseas, and, they, and they've not heard it. Well, the, the bathroom here, I mean, this, this casita is lined with Herbalife product. I've tried the shampoo. I've tried the conditioner. I've tried the hand soap. I've tried the cream. There's, there's cologne, which I've not tried. Decent products. Now, why are they successful? The shake now, they one of the I think the original project was a nutrition shake, and and it is one of the best selling shakes in the world. Nutrition shakes, and but but why are they successful? They're successful, I think, because it is a product that is sold by an individual. It's not something you buy online. It's not a faceless company. It's sold. By a person who is not a commodity and presumably has a unique personality, a unique way to, to deliver things. And, and that's why herbal life is successful. Now, I, I'm not going to comment whether it I mean it's the Ackman's contention, this is a pyramid scheme. And if you read the Fortune article, very, very long article, detailed article, it goes back and forth on, on what's a pyramid scheme and how it's not really defined in the code. And you can make your own judgment. But I, I can tell you that the product seems decent product. And, and I can tell you the person that owns this house has been doing it for 32 years. She said she was 65. I, I would have said she looked 52. And now is that herbal life and have, taking that shake for 32 years every morning? Or is it something else? I don't know. I tell my kids who are in college, not to be a commodity to, no matter what, you, I don't care what they do for a living, but if you're going to do it, do it so they hire you for you and not, and because you deliver value, don't be like everyone else. You have to be unique. And that's where business has gone. People want to hire individuals. They don't want to hire commodities. They hire... For the relationship. I saw that in my investment business. People hired me. They did not hire my firm. And when I left my firm and started a podcast, people hire me for me. There's lots of investment podcasts out there. Some of them you might like, some of them you're not. And but the point is people listen to my podcast because I'm the host and because of the value I'm delivering. And some people don't like my podcast at all. They say I tell too many stories or I don't tell enough stories. Or, or whatever, but it has to be unique. And I tell that to my kids, and that's the point here. Don't be a commodity. Now, speaking of commodities, they're doing awful this year as an investment. I spoke about commodities as an investment back in episode 40, and, and we talked about commodity super cycles and how you have these long periods of upward trends in commodities and long bear periods of downward trends. And we are five years in to the seventh commodity super cycle bear since the late 1700s, so, so, so since about 1800. That's the, so you, and then have, there's charts where you can go and you can see that, and they tend to be very, very long. The average bear market in commodities is 19.6 years. And the average decline is negative 51%. The current decline is 43% decline. And and typically in these commodity super cycles, now most of the carnage is in the first five or six years and then things kind of go sideways and you might have some commodities going up a little bit, but they tend to be very, very long cycles. And so I don't have any direct exposure to commodity futures right now, because you can't necessarily buy a commodity. Some of them you can. You can buy gold. There's some precious metal. You can take hard delivery. But mostly, you invest through commodities futures. And if you go back and listen to episode 40, I described that in, in more detail. Now, one of the things Bill Ackman admits when he makes mistakes. And he made some mistakes in his first fund. And and one of the things I do in this show and on The Hub is admit when I make mistakes. I bought oil for a a short time, for a few months this year, Oil Futures, completely speculative, and it didn't work out. And and that was a mistake. But that, that, that goes into the speculation bucket. A bigger mistake has been my investment in master limited partnerships. These are energy infrastructure assets that in that essentially move oil and natural gas and store it. And and it has been a horrendously poor investment with some of with with MLPs overall some of them down 50%. Some of them are down 20% this week alone. And, and it is a, a great example of, one, don't try to catch a falling knife. The, the, this negative sentiment against master limited partnerships is huge. Now, what was my mistake? My mistake was, typically, if I, I, I track what are known as market internals, and if something appears to be selling off and it's sold off, 15 to 20%, usually I'm out. Most of the time, I'm out. This time, I stayed. And I stayed because of the yield, the income, the attractive yield. And I've seen this investment fall and fall and fall to where its yield on, on one of the funds I'm holding is over 15%. And, but it fell so much this week, it's it sort of, and I've gotten some, some emails, you know, is it going to go under? This particular holding are is master limited partnerships overall going to completely go away? And I step back and I think about that, and it's not as if we're never in the U.S. going to use oil again. You see that lineup of people at that gasoline station, or you know somebody else mentioned electric cars. If we all use electric cars, we still have to power those cars up. We have to charge them. My friend has a Tesla, and and he has to charge it every day. And he can only go about 200, 250 miles on one charge. Well, how is that charged? How is that electricity generated? More and more by natural gas, which goes through these same pipelines and storage facilities that are owned by Master Limited Partnerships. Kinder Morgan, as I mentioned earlier, is a Master Limited Partnership, but it gets 40% of its revenue from oil production. And so you have upstream MLPs which are suffering and are going to be in a lot of trouble. The midstream MLPs, at least on the surface, while they may have to cut their dividends, while they may have, they certainly have some balance sheet stress, it's a viable, ongoing business. Yet the securities are trading like they're going out of business. And maybe they will. And that's the point. Whenever you invest, Whenever I invest, you have to go in, when you make an allocation, you have to scale it based on worst-case scenarios, extreme events. What's the worst thing that could happen? Well, the worst thing can happen is it could go to zero. And so if that did happen, could you continue to your your lifestyle? How would that impact your portfolio? And so it's important to scale those investments, And, and in my case, Owning MLPs has been a mistake. I've not sold and I'll continue to hold, and I'm willing to ride them to zero because I don't believe the energy infrastructure in the US is going to go away. And we'll see. But that's, it's important that that's how you scale. You just have to scale your investments where it's diversified enough. And I've mentioned I have over 15 different asset classes so that if something goes bad, you can overcome. Master Limited Partnerships are one of the asset classes on the Money for the Rest of Us hub where I rate their market conditions in terms of their valuations, in terms of the economic trends, and in terms of market internals. And they're rated green is good, yellow is neutral, red would be bearish. And MLPs is one of those on the hub that are definitely... Rated red. I continue to own it, and there are expected 10 year returns for MLPs. But in terms of its short term environment, that along with emerging markets, equity is rated red. Money for the Rest of Us Hub is where you can get asset allocation and portfolio guidance. You can get more information on that at moneyfortherestofushub.com. I mentioned Kinder Morgan as a master limited partnership. It it was initially Kinder Morgan way back when Bill Ackman was investing, early two thousand. Kinder Morgan, I, I believe, invented the using the MLP structure for energy infrastructure assets. In the past year, Kinder Morgan has dissolved some of their MLP structures and moved it into a energy. I think just the, the corporate entity. MLPs are complicated. The tax structures are complicated. I don't own individual MLPs. I own, you can own it through an exchange-traded node. You can own them through an exchange-traded fund. I've owned them through a closed-end fund. I don't recommend owning them through a closed-end fund right now, given closed-end funds are highly levered. And, and when you have an asset class falling like a stone, that leverage can come back to bite. And you can learn more about closed-end funds also on the money for the Rest of Us Hub. I want to thank all those that have left reviews of the show on iTunes, on Stitchers, and on other platforms. I wanted to read, quickly, a review from Alamo, who I assume is from San Antonio. It's titled, Can't Believe It's Free?, Quote, I've learned so much about investing from David that I feel almost guilty not to pay for the value that I'm getting out of this. The podcast and weekly newsletters, The Insider's Guide, are a great starting point for novice investors to learn basic investment principles and to get advice from a seasoned expert. I've recommended this podcast to many of my friends who are also young professionals in their early careers. And David's newsletter is the only mass email that I read and archive regularly regularly. On this subject, because they are full of insights and resources with no annoying advertisement and sales pitch. I hope one day I'll have enough money to invest to justify paying the membership fee of his hub. Keep up the good work. Thanks, Alamo, for sharing the podcast with your friends, sharing the show. I thank you also for the review. The newsletter she mentions is the Insider's Guide, which you can sign up for at net. Everything I've shared with you in this episode has been for general education only. I don't provide investment advice because I don't. I'm, not, I'm no longer a registered investment advisor. I'm a journalist. I'm a self-described journalist. And because I am a journalist, I get to go to Cuba next month with my son because U.S. now allows journalists to go visit Cuba. So I'll certainly provide a report from there. Have a great week.